This is Macro Horizons, monthly episode seven, Chinese devaluation, why put a label on it? Presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Margaret Karens, here with Greg Anderson, Stephen Gallo, Ian Linging, John Hill, and Dan Creter from our FIC macro strategy team, along with Michael Gregory from BMO Economics and Colin Hamilton from BMO Commodities to bring you our thoughts on the escalating US-China trade and currency wars. Each month, members from BMO's FIC Macro Strategy team join me for a roundtable focusing on relevant and timely topics that impact our markets. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at margaret.carens at bmo.com with questions, comments, or topics you would like to hear more about on future episodes. We value your input and appreciate your ideas and suggestions. Thanks for joining us. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Let's start with Greg Anderson in BMO's FX Group. Greg, can you give us some background on how and why the U.S. is engaged with the trade war and now a currency war with China? If you go back to what Trump, you know, campaigned on and thinks that he won on, making America great again— You know, the whole idea was to bring manufacturing back to middle America, where manufacturing had leaked out to Mexico and to China. So it was a huge part of his platform to take it to China, so to speak. Well, immediately after being elected, Trump invited CEOs from corporate America to, you know, start building plants in the U.S. And the feedback that he got was, well, the tax incentives are wrong. So step one was to cut corporate taxes to create the right incentives for reshoring. Didn't exactly work 100% the way that the Trump administration wanted. So step two is renegotiate trade deals with Mexico through the NAFTA renegotiations and with China. And the China renegotiations didn't exactly go the way that they wanted. So they went to the next step, tariffs on $200 billion worth of Chinese goods. Of course, these were cherry-picked goods, goods that were produced primarily by Chinese firms and were intermediate goods. So they weren't, you know, raise consumer prices immediately in the U.S. Well, did that work? Not exactly. Just looking at data from the first half of 2019 relative to 2018, yes, imports from China to the U.S. dropped by about 12 percent. But guess what? U.S. exports to China dropped by 19 percent. And so it was not working. And the Trump administration tried, you know, more negotiations, which in their view were not fruitful. And hence, we got to last week, the dropping of a 10% tariff on all the remaining goods produced in China. And this is a tariff that hits American companies, American companies that have, you know, final production in China and export back to the United States. It squeezes them tremendously and, you know, designed to be the tool that forces them to reshore production back to middle America. China responded with what I would call a mini deval, and the Trump administration felt obligated to respond to that. And so their response was, and I'll argue this is minimalist, but to label China as an FX manipulator. And that is a tool that the U.S. has had for 40-ish years, where if the Treasury labels a country as a manipulator, it is supposed to start negotiations with the Treasury and that country about 
exchange rate levels and movements and so forth and activities. Well, in this case, look, Mnuchin was, was in China last week. So the negotiations are already ongoing. The second aspect of that is, is you know, it, it gives the president the ability to impose tariffs. Well, he's already imposed tariffs. So in a lot of ways, it's teethless, but it is a response that starts an international dialogue on what is FX manipulation and is China guilty of it now? Have they been guilty of it in the past? Thank you, Greg. Let's move on to the actual U.S. dollar RMB and what's been going on in the foreign exchange market over the past couple of days. So, Stephen, can you give us some background on China's external and domestic fundamentals? Sure. The short answer or the short explanation of those fundamentals is that they're generally weak. So our view in FX strategy has been for a while that the RMB has to either stay weak or go lower in a sustained manner. So we think it was heading lower anyway, but we think what China has done is it's used the trade war as a partial excuse for letting the RMB depreciate over the past 24 hours or so at this part of the cycle. That does not mean that the trade war shouldn't have meant that the yuan weakened earlier. That's not what we're saying. But at this point in the cycle, the catalyst for the move was the trade war. But RMB fundamentals have generally been weak and heralded a weaker RMB to begin with. So what are those fundamentals? Well, China's current account surplus is a lot smaller today than it was a half decade ago or a decade ago. China has an elevated debt burden. There are a lot of unprofitable state-run enterprises in China. China has been trying to attract inbound capital flow despite the weaker macroeconomic picture globally and domestically. That is a case for a weaker RMB as well. The fundamental picture is pretty bleak, but I think it's, it's also important to look at the moves we've seen in the RMB recently and over the past six months to 12 months or so and compare them to what the situation was in 2015-16 because that was really the last period of RMB depreciation, step devaluations in the currency orchestrated by PBOC. And I think the similarities and or differences are pretty intriguing and they're very interesting. So in 2015, China had a bigger current account surplus than it does today, but its financial account was more porous. And that is why the 2015 devaluation, in our opinion, was very chaotic. It was haphazard and disorderly. It's kind of like regulators and policymakers in China lost control a little bit. Fast forward to 2019, the current account surplus today is smaller. As of the end of Q1, it was less than 1% of GDP. But the financial account is less porous. There are more restrictions on outbound flow today, and the general control over the financial account is higher today than it was in 2015. And that's why this devaluation has been more orderly. And so what we've been saying, and what we'll continue to say, is that in the context of a weak economic backdrop domestically and globally, China has the ability to orchestrate an orderly devaluation of the RMB. And that's what it's been doing. We've seen a significant degree of rate suppression in China in both offshore and onshore rates, which China has done alongside a much more dovish Fed. It's not necessarily the case that China would have been able to orchestrate that rate suppression in 2015 and still achieved an orderly decline in the RMB. But the situation is different today 
And we think this spells more orderly weakness in the RMB from here. If the U.S. RMB were a floating exchange rate, where do you think it would be today? If you just simply do back of the envelope calculations and you look at the amount of goods exports to the U.S. that are now being tariffed, basically all goods exports from China to the U.S. have a tariff on them of differing, differing amounts. But if you look at the amount of goods that are tariffed and you look at the size of the tariffs, the dollar RMB should actually be quite a bit higher. So it's certainly the case that China is absorbing some of the additional costs, so to speak, of doing business in the U.S. Companies are absorbing that into their margins, i.e. it's not good because the RMB should be quite a bit weaker. But of course, China cannot allow the RMB to depreciate rapidly and to a very large degree all at once because that would be a headache for the balance of payments and, and potentially for the global economy and for the rest of the EM space. So we would say it probably should be higher. What China is effectively doing is controlling the pace of the move up in dollar RMB. So Stephen, what do you think China will do regarding its currency against the backdrop of the desire for an orderly depreciation and the trade war? I think China is probably going to do a few things going forward. It's going to be data dependent. So if the Chinese economic data and or international data somehow conspire to orchestrate a higher level of dollar RMB or a stronger dollar broadly or a weaker RMB, then China will let dollar RMB drift higher or lower, depending on what the data say. Of course, there's the trade war. If the trade war heats up again or if it cools off, China will let the currency respond to those events, to those headlines, to those developments in the trade war. And the other thing that PBOC, that the Chinese regulators will probably do, is they'll look at moves in other major currencies. So, for example, if the ECB eases policy aggressively in the autumn, we do expect it to ease policy. If it eases policy more aggressively than currently expected and the euro falls sharply, that could be an excuse for PBOC to let dollar RMB move higher. So basically what it would be doing is moving lockstep or in pair with the move in euro dollar. What we don't think China is going to do, and again, I would caution listeners against interpreting the moves recently as an example of this, what we don't think China will do is deliberately orchestrate a big devaluation of the RMB simply to annoy the White House or the Trump administration. That's probably not what it's going to try to do. In terms of the trade war, it probably prefers to play the role of innocent bystander in that sense. So, Greg, Stephen mentioned the fundamentals of the Chinese economy and argued for U.S. dollar RMB to trade higher. What would happen if the RMB were to continue to depreciate? So what would happen if China were to, let's say, push it to where they would view equilibrium, let's say, eight in dollar China? The first thing, Trump administration would throw a fit. And Trump would do something very similar to what he did with the Iran situation, go to Europe and say, see, I told you so. This is the way that these people play, play the game. So join with me in shutting them out. And that's the first big repercussion. There is a second repercussion that has always been there, even pre-Trump, and that is if China ever moves its currency you know, more than five-ish percent, guess what? All of the other Asian emerging currencies move just a little bit more than, than China moved. And where there's so much competition between the ASEAN countries and, and China for being the production platform, that can be counterproductive. So in terms of where I think this goes from here, 
I think that both sides are looking for an off-ramp. How can we just de-escalate this from here? But both sides want to get the last word in, so to speak. And the Trump administration just dropped the last word. And I presume that China feels like that they have to respond. And the question is, is the response, you know, kind of toothless the way that the FX manipulator designation was, or is it more severe? The most severe route that I could see this going is the Trump administration just one day saying, fine, you know, tariffs are 10% or 25% on on all remaining goods from today on. And I'd say that China's most powerful tool is, if that were done, to restrict the export of rare earths, which uh, would put all kinds of difficulties in the U.S.'s ability to move production back home. So, Greg, those are some very interesting points. What about Canada? Is there a way for Canada to avoid involvement? I think for many countries, they're just in a very difficult spot because China and the U.S. want them to pick sides. Think of it as two spatting parents in the middle of a divorce, and they, they want the kids to pick sides. The U.S.'s leverage on Canada and Australia and New Zealand and the U.K. has been the Five Eyes program. And basically the threat, if you cooperate too much with China, we will kick you out of the five eyes. And thus far, Canada has tried to appease China, but has done more to appease the U.S. And the end result has been you know, a fairly difficult spat between China and Canada. Briefly, the five eyes is the intelligence cooperation between the U.S., Canada, New Zealand, Australia, and the U.K., sharing all intelligence gathered, essentially, with each other as complete partners. Okay, so for Canada as a bystander, admittedly, you know, so much of Canada's trade is with the U.S. and so little of its trade is with China that if you're forced to make a decision, Canada has to side with the U.S. On the trade war and on designation of China as a manipulator, I'm sure Canada, along with everyone else, would do the very best to stay out of the argument. But if the Fed starts cutting rates, joining in in the currency war, then I think Canada probably eventually gets involved. And I would point out, as trying to stay a bystander in the currency wars thus far this year, including U.S.-Europe currency wars, the end result for CAD has been it's the strongest G10 currency year to date. All right. Thanks, Greg. Let's shift gears here and move toward the U.S. rates market, where we've had some pretty large moves over the past couple of trading sessions. So, Ian, I'd like to turn it over to you at this point. Yeah, it's been a fascinating period in the Treasury market. We have, to a large extent, been playing catch up with what's going on in the rest of the world, whether it's the trade war, the implications for Europe. And as a result, we see the Fed, for the first time, at least in recent memory, is that they're trying to get in front of any potential slowdown. So if we think about how much the Fed has relied on financial conditions as a driver for monetary policy over the course of the last several years, what struck us as most notable in this recent episode is that the Fed was willing to cut rates even though financial conditions were already very easy. So to some extent, the Fed is shifting into a role where they are very comfortable getting in front of 
any significant tightening of financial conditions. So the takeaway is that it's very consensus at this point that the Fed is going to mirror the 90s at least to start and deliver three 25 basis point rate cuts that gets us to cumulative 75 basis points of easing. And then the big question, at least in my mind, becomes what does the Fed do after that and how do risk assets and how does the market respond? As it plays out in 10-year yields, we had a massive repricing we're back at roughly 175 at the moment. If we get another leg lower because of the trade tensions, then I would anticipate that we drift to the trading range that was in place during the mid-2016 period, which was roughly 145 to 175, and hold that into the fourth quarter, waiting for some type of clarity insofar as what this all means to the risks of a global recession and how the Fed might be willing to respond more or less. When I contemplate what an actual currency war would do to the yield curve, the shape of the yield curve and outright yields, the first thing that strikes me is if the Treasury Department were to actually engage in selling of dollars against the majors, that would intuitively weaken the dollar, and we would be at the risk of importing inflation. The other thing that strikes me is if the administration were to go that route and cross that proverbial Rubicon, that would be a true undermining of the dollar's status as a reserve currency, at least in the mind of treasury investors. So we've been making the argument over the course of the last couple of years that supply and demand doesn't matter in the treasury market the way it does in traditional asset markets. That's primarily because the dollar benefits from being the last reserve currency standing. Those are two clearly bearish impulses for the treasury market that would suggest higher rates. The flip side then being what it all means for the global economy and what it all means for the chances that we find ourselves in a more significant global deflationary environment. And I think I'd take this opportunity to toss it back to Greg because we haven't talked much about the actual probability or the notion that the administration could go about actually trying to actively devalue the dollar. This has been a hot debate, I'm sure, in the U.S. administration over the last six weeks and in Forex markets too. Can the U.S. intervene? And historically, the U.S. has really not in any type of size. The U.S.'s reserves portfolio is laughably small compared to most countries. But theoretically, it could. So the U.S. can basically print money and go out and buy foreign currencies and bid their price up. Problem is the printing money side of it. Either the Treasury has to print it and ask permission from Congress, or the Fed has to print it and has to be in agreement that that's the uh, right step to take. So it's a little bit tricky. Last week, we had Larry Kudlow come out and say, basically, no, the U.S. will not do that. My suspicion is that he may have gone beyond what others in the Trump administration wanted by admitting that that's a lever that they're not going to pull. But I do think that that's a last resort option is pulling that lever because it's going to draw all kinds of, of criticism from different quarters and be a highly controversial step. It's just not healthy so soon before an election. Well, thanks, Greg. Going back to Ian Linging and John Hill in rates, you know, Ian, I think we were talking about some short-term and long-term implications for the U.S. rates market. 
In terms of 10-year yields, do you see 150 more likely than 2% or vice versa? Well, that all depends on what occurs over the course of the next six or eight weeks. Now, if the Fed ends up being proven correctly to have jumped in front of any significant slowdown quickly enough, the domestic economic data takes a bit of a dip, but then stabilizes into the end of the year, I think it's very conceivable that we'll have a traditional bearish fourth quarter in the treasury market. The flip side then becomes what happens if the entire situation devolves at the pace it has been over the course of the last several weeks. In that situation, I think it's very conceivable that we end the year with 10-year yields much closer to 150 than 250. I'd follow that up by flagging break-evens in particular. We've seen the market pricing expectations for at least two more cuts this year, perhaps more. And what the market is in essence saying is, yes, we think you're going to cut multiple times. But if you look at five and 10-year break-evens, they're kind of back at levels pre-2016 election. And at the 10-year space, we're looking at levels that were seen after oil prices cratered in 2014, 2015. So the expectation, at least as of now, seems not to be there that the Fed's cuts will provide the level of an inflationary impetus that is necessary. That's not to say that pricing won't eventually work its way into the market, just that the knee-jerk reaction from the series of events we've had over the past week or two has led to a lot of skepticism that the Fed will meet its inflation mandate. And this really tees the Fed up to cut not only three times, but potentially four or more, even in a version of a mid-cycle stabilization. So let's turn to Michael Gregory from BMO Economics. Michael, John was just talking about the potential for more Fed cuts than the market is currently pricing. We know that the BOC has a higher bar for cutting rates, but what happens at the BOC if the Fed actually cuts before the September meeting or moves by 50 basis points? The Bank of Canada has clearly been more circumspect when it comes to reacting to the U.S.-China trade war, particularly compared to other central banks like the Fed, like the ECB, like the RBA. And the reason why they've been a little more circumspect is because several factors. Number one, core inflation in Canada among the three metrics that the Bank of Canada follows is averaging exactly 2%, whereas, say, in the case of the U.S., a core inflation is underperforming. The Bank of Canada's policy rate at one and three quarters percent is already negative in real terms. So it's already providing some accommodation for the economy. And, and perhaps more importantly is the fact that both the federal government and various provincial governments have worked very hard over the last several years to bring some stability to the Canadian housing market and to household debt ratios. And now having achieved some sense of stability, I think the Bank of Canada will be very cautious about potentially cutting rates and destabilizing those factors. And on top of it, the Canadian economy is actually performing quite well. Through the turn of the year, admittedly, growth was quite weak. Through Q1 and and Q4, it it averaged less than half a percent annualized, but that has subsequently picked up. We think we'll probably see north of 3% growth annualized in the second quarter before getting down close to about 2% in the third quarter. So very much like the U.S. economy, the Canadian economy is in a good place. 
That said, our base case has always been that if the Fed is going to cut rates to mitigate some of the risks to the U.S. outlook of not being in that good place going down the road because of the escalating trade war, and say the Fed moved in July, which they have, and of course then moved in September and October, that only by about October the Bank of Canada would probably think about considering moving on rates. And whether or not they did move will depend on three critical factors. Number one, is there sort of tangible evidence that the escalating trade war is showing up in measurable impact on the U.S. economy? Number two, Two, is it impacting the global trade war sufficiently to pull down global commodity prices and particularly oil prices, which are critically important for the Canadian outlook? And thirdly, and perhaps more importantly, whether this was pushing up the value of the Canadian dollar. If any or all of these three factors were at play, we judge that the Bank of Canada you know, had a high probability of following the Fed on that last of three cuts. Now, if the Fed were to go early now, say with an intermeeting move or by a 50 basis point move, that would be an indication that the global trade war is having a much more significant risks to the outlook or actually showing up in terms of the data in a more significant manner. And as a result, we think that if the Fed were to go intermeeting or were to go by a 50 basis point move at the next meeting for the Bank of Canada, they would probably then cut rates. So let's turn to Dan Creeder, who covers high quality spreads. Dan, what are the implications for the investment grade credit market of an escalating trade war? Well, the obvious answer is that it, it's a widener. Uh, and we've seen that reaction already in just a couple of days. The broad IG indices are 10 plus basis points wider to swaps and five to six basis points wider compared to treasuries. And we expect that trend to continue. We went back and looked at how IGs have reacted to past deteriorations in the trade war, and typically the spread widening would last weeks. And this, you could argue, is the most dramatic deterioration so far. As Greg alluded to earlier, for the first time, America is now going to be tariffing American companies that assemble products in China. So we're going to see a more direct impact on corporate profitability from this most recent iteration of the trade war. So we were already expecting profitability in corporates to be hit by the trade war later this year. That view is now enhanced. So we should continue to see spreads widen. And the recovery of spreads that we've observed in the past might take a bit longer, might not even materialize this time, because investors, I think, are more aware of some of the fundamental weakness in the corporate market and more wary of the trade war in general. Now, there, there will be better days ahead. The Fed is easing. The stock market will like further Fed rate cuts. So we're not expecting to see IG spreads hit their cyclical highs at this point, but we think that fundamentally they should be wider and we're not going to return to the narrow spreads that we've observed for the majority of 2019. Those are probably behind us now. Dan, how about high quality spreads? In the immediate aftermath of this most recent trade war escalation, high quality spreads haven't really moved. If anything, they're slightly narrower compared to treasuries as a result of what's happening in the swap market. And that's kind of the pattern we expect. We don't see a large impact on high quality spreads from this, but we will mention that if anything, it's likely wider. And there's two real reasons to think this. First, if the widening in the corporate market is sufficient, we should see high quality spreads dragged at least a little bit. And secondly, as China devalues their currency, and Greg alluded to this earlier, we should see other Asian currencies drift lower as well, which could spark those central banks to make some move to defend their currency, even if China isn't going to. So we could see sort of a 2015 light scenario where non-China Asian central banks sell U.S. dollar assets 
to defend their currency. And as we saw in 2015, that was when SSA and other high quality spreads hit their multi-year highs. And we could see a move similar, although to a smaller magnitude, if there is some central bank selling out of other Asian countries. So Dan, we've had a pretty big move in swap spreads over the past couple trading sessions. Where do they go from here? Well, in the swap market, I actually don't think the trade war is what's driving the swap market right now. I'll highlight two main things. The first is the collateral oversupply problem, which we've talked about ad nauseum, so I won't get too deep into it. But that continues to weigh heavily on swap spreads, but also the dramatic move in treasuries. And we've observed in 2019 the somewhat counterintuitive phenomenon of when treasury yields rally sharply, swaps narrow. Historically, that hasn't been the case. But given how expensive collateral is now to finance, you're seeing more people putting on duration views in the swap market rather than the treasuries when we're expecting rates to go down. So you see swap spreads actually narrow during large treasury rallies. And of course, convexity hedging as mortgages are rolling into the money at an increasing rate, given how low rates are, that's also a spread narrower. So I think that's what's primarily driving swap spreads now. The trade war specifically, it's kind of two forces. I talked about the other Asian central banks selling. If that were to happen to defend currencies, that's a swap spread narrower a la 2015. But at the same time, deterioration in corporates should influence LIBOR higher and thus swap spreads higher as well. So I think the trade war doesn't have a large direct impact. Maybe, if anything, it's sort of a two-phase where you might see narrowing pressure in the beginning, but then widening pressure later on if LIBOR does continue to move higher. All right, Dan, what's the bottom line in the investment-grade markets? The bottom line is spread decompression. And as a result, we recommend up in credit trades. We expect to see better buying opportunities in September as the trade war influences all spreads at least slightly wider and heavy issuance during September is a technical headwind as well. In September, we expect swap spreads to begin to move wider. So when we try to take advantage of those better entry opportunities, we do so by hedging with swaps. I'd like to turn to Colin Hamilton, BMO's commodity analyst, to discuss his outlook for commodities against this current market backdrop. Thank you. Well, when we think industrial metals, we think China. And obviously, we have a two-pronged problem here at the moment. Number one, we have weakening demand conditions. That's within the Chinese domestic economy. That is within the global economy. And even with what has been a very strong metals-intensive fiscal push, you've seen demand forecasts continue to be revised lower in that area. The second factor which is weighing on industrial metals and and will continue to do so is this move in the RMB. Essentially, your marginal consumer and producer of many of the metals out there is China and is therefore RMB denominated. So therefore, purchase costs for raw materials go up, but processing costs come down. And therefore, when we're looking at market clearing cost structures for the industry, these are moving lower in US dollar terms. And that, in my view, will keep asset allocators outside of the industrial metal space for now. What is interesting, however, is we're in a very precious metals positive environment. We have been for much of the year. It swung around, but we've obviously had things like gold breaking into a new range. And it's interesting. I think the gold market is happily pricing in the rate cuts that have been discussed here. But what is interesting now, I don't necessarily think they're pricing in what's happening in China. Because hand in hand with the depreciation that we're seeing, you will see capital controls coming through hard and fast. 
one of the few ways around capital controls is to purchase gold that can still be done in Hong Kong, that can be shifted across the border relatively easily, and it is a good US dollar hedge for many Chinese investors. So I would expect to see more wealth management products in China seeking to purchase gold or gold-backed securities in the market over the coming period. That will continue to support precious metals investment at the current time. So we are, do have a preference for precious metals exposure still. Industrial metals, as I say, we're running down inventory. The challenge is with a demand environment that we're in at the moment, it is actually quite tough for them to perform. So the bottom line, Colin, on that with regard to inflation? Yes, in the environment we're in at the moment, and one of the interesting things is we're getting this depreciation in China coming through at the same time as producer price inflation is heading into negative territory. That does bring about, again, concerns over China's corporate debt that have been bubbling away in the background, if you want, since 2015, when they successfully reflated the economy at that point. You're likely to see an interesting development, and it's actually a slightly inflationary development in industrial markets generally. I mean, what I'm seeing more and more of is what I'm terming industrial patriotism, i.e. we are seeing a lot of countries push their domestic industries hard and, and clearly have a strong preference for uh, domestic purchases in terms of particularly consumer and capital goods. That is why we're seeing some pressure on some of the European economies who used to have a, a strong trading partner in China. Now what we're seeing is if you go into a consumer goods store in Shanghai, you will see the Chinese brands at the front of the store. They may have been at the back of the store six months ago. On the other side of the equation, where we're seeing some deflationary pressure coming through at the moment is in energy markets. We have basically quite a lot of gas in the world at the moment. We've had a lot of liquefied natural gas projects ramping up. We've also got the cost of renewables falling very fast. Europe is maybe the test case here. We have a market there where energy prices have been falling quite rapidly over the course of this year. And increasingly in emerging markets as well, we're seeing auctions won by renewable energy. That is the first time we've been seeing that over recent years. And that does point to a situation where energy pricing more generally is going to be a deflationary element over the coming period. Thank you, Colin. Greg or Stephen, uh, would you like to have a final word? Sure. I'd probably like to make a quick comment about the Eurozone because I think on a geopolitical level and also on a trade level, the Eurozone is very much in the crosshairs in a big way. I'll leave the geopolitical side to one side for a moment and just focus on the trade and economic. As we all know, the Eurozone has a lot of financial frailties. It's very dependent on external demand, in part because of Germany's weight within the bloc. It has limited fiscal room to maneuver because the rules are relatively draconian and rigid. And you have a number of countries in the Eurozone that need more downward nominal exchange rate flexibility. They need loose monetary policy and probably quite a bit looser fiscal policy. But given Germany's large weight in the bloc, achieving that nominal depreciation of the currency, vis-a-vis -vis the euro, of course, is going to inflame trade tensions. So we've heard this phrase used many times in the past, I'll use it again, to say that Eurozone is caught between a rock and a hard place uh, is probably putting it lightly. We think that there will be Euro downside over the coming three to six months. Our forecast for Euro dollar over that time period is 108. But we're cautious given that conundrum that the ECB and the Eurozone policymakers find themselves in. Uh, that being that 
some countries in the bloc could use quite a bit weaker nominal exchange rates, weaker nominal currencies, but because of Germany's weight in the bloc, it's hard to achieve that vis-a-vis the euro. The point is, though, that if, if we don't get a much, much weaker euro because of the trade situation, that's going to show up somewhere else. And it's probably going to be a combination of political tension, particularly in the southern part of the bloc, like in Italy, and or it's going to worsen the inflation and growth outlooks even more than they already have been. So it's a very difficult sort of three to six months and beyond for the eurozone in our view, both as a result of its domestic issues and also the U.S.-China trade impasse. We've had headlines in FX-related international economics, geopolitics, that are as explosive as I have seen in, in a 25-year career. And yet, Eurodollar has been 110 to 115 all year, a 5% range. And dollar-yen's been, call it 104 to 110, you know, really tiny, narrow ranges. And I'm somewhat at a loss to explain how you can have such explosive news and so little volatility in exchange rates. And I don't trust that that can continue. I guess underneath it, look, nobody is in a recession yet. And maybe that's why we don't really have the big movements in in exchange rates. But I, I just remain skeptical that it can continue this way, that we can go for another three to six months with this type of news and not all of a sudden have something move 20%. Thank you for your insights and thank you for listening. This concludes Macro Horizons Monthly Episode 7. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. We'd like to hear what you thought of today's episode. You can send us an email at margaret.carens at bmo.com. You can listen to the show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. And we'd appreciate it if you could take a moment to leave us a rating and a review. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show is produced and edited by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including without limitation any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. 
No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.